0: Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and across the course of the new season I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media This week I'm speaking to Richard Whittle freelance journalist and football writer In the course of our conversation we discuss his experiences of working within the North American football media context, long form and analytics writing, and the responsibilities of the media in detoxifying dangerous football environments If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter at Pod. Next week we'll be speaking to Paul Highland about literature's place in the football media But before that, it's Richard Whittle and life in the North American football media Enjoy I'm joined today by Richard Whittle, freelance journalist and football writer Richard, how are you doing? I'm really good. In all of the opening questions on this podcast series, I like to try and get my guest a little bit more situated in the football media. So could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the media and your involvement in the media in general?
1: Sure. So basically, I started writing a football blog, I think in 2007. Um, and uh, it was mostly because I was working a full time job then and uh, I was trying to do a little more writing on the side. But when you're obviously starting from scratch, it's, it's really difficult to know where to begin. So I sort of, uh, used the blog as a kind of means test for whether or not it would be possible to, you know, gain an audience or, you know, to gain a sense of whether or not I had any sort of writing chops. Um, because, you know, the only sort of feedback I'd had up to that point was through university. Um, I did a few freelance assignments then, but nothing too complicated. So, so my main interest then, as I guess it is now, was, was football. So I know it was a time that, you know, there wasn't, there weren't a ton of people in North America who were sort of venturing out to try to write about that subject. So I thought I could sort of add a voice to the mix. And um, and so I started writing about everything, really. Um, so a lot of European stuff, obviously, a lot of Premier League focus. But then I also started trying to sort of dig into Canadian soccer, which was a kind of wilderness Back then, it's not as much now, but, uh, but essentially I started sort of looking into the history of Canadian soccer and, uh, and I did a series, I guess, in, uh, the summer of 2008, um, just seeing if I could write a sort of original article, just looking at newspaper archives online about Canadian soccer history. And it was really successful and I sort of got some attention through that. And then it kind of took off, you know, slowly from there. Um, I got a freelance, I started to get freelance work through 2009, 2010. So my site was getting some some attention then. So I I did some stuff for um, a few publications here in Toronto, Toronto Life and the Globe and Mail, and then uh, I worked for Yahoo uh, for the World Cup, two thousand ten World Cup, and then a friend of mine, Joe Ross at the Score, asked me to if I wanted to start writing stuff for them uh, as sort of a lead up to maybe working for them full time. And so and so that I did that, and I I can't I think I started at the Score in two thousand eleven, and sort of everything happened from there.
0: Yeah. And you've mentioned to me off air that you have sort of moved away from the football writing a little bit. You're, you're still freelancing, but not so much anymore. And I wondered if we could talk about why it was that you decided to to move out of it.
1: Sure. Well, it wasn't a conscious decision. Like I don't think many people have the luxury sometimes of making (laughs) deliberate decisions about their work um, necessarily, but, uh, i had been working, um, so i had been freelancing for three years. Um, and, uh, the fact that I was sort of able to eke out a living that way itself was kind of miraculous. But um, I've been writing for Paste Magazine and editing their soccer page. Um, took off for, or took over from Daryl Grove, who sort of started it, I guess, in the 2014 World Cup. It was a really fun gig, and uh, we had sort of a small freelance budget and um, sort of made it our, our own little space. But uh, but Paste sort of decided that you know <laughs> I think they were trying to move into a more culture. Uh, movie music culture direction, and they didn't really need this weird sports blog hanging off of it. So, uh, so they just decided to, um, to sort of finish that and at that point I had just put in a job application for a pretty secure lucrative writing job uh, but outside of the soccer writing world and uh, and I decided it was you know I have two kids and and freelancing is as anyone who has done it is it's very very stressful and uh, unpredictable and I just thought all right I, ne- I need a break from this and uh,
0: and so I took it but you're still doing as much freelance as you can on the side right
1: yeah interestingly enough i i I sort of haven't done as much in the soccer world for a while uh and that's not necessarily intentional but mostly because you know it's hard to pitching soccer stories is hard at the best of times and uh and i sort of had branched out you know um, when i was freelancing into other areas a little bit um so i was doing a lot of you know feature writing for the national post on various cultural cultural issues It's a newspaper here in toronto and um but I'd still like to, I mean, I still read a lot about the, the sport. I still watch it all the time. I'm still interested in it. Um, and I'd still obviously like to write about it. But I'm not, I am i don't have my foot on the gas in that area as much. I'm sort of taking a little mental, mental break.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, no, don't blame me having having done so, <laughs> similar things and now being in the freelance uh, realm. Let's talk a little bit about the American context. You've, you mentioned that you're in Canada um, and, and I think you are Canadian, right?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah. I'd be interested in knowing what it's like covering, well, what's your experience of the football media in Canada, in North America in general, and what's it like covering football from a country which doesn't boast one of the top five leagues in, in world football?
1: Well, you don't sort of know until you're really outside of the country, especially when you're in a a football mad country, either in, you know, in continental Europe or when I, when I, I just remember that when I went to the UK and, and seeing all these football stories splashed all over the front pages, let alone the sports sections, it's, it's totally alien to me. Um, uh, and kind of amazing. So so you don't really have a sense of what you're missing until you're actually in a country that is deeply, deeply passionate about the sport. But um, there's good and bad things. Obviously, people uh complain endlessly about the the fact that the sport, you know, at least MLS doesn't get front page coverage in uh North American newspapers, but I think that's, you know, I think anyone who's realistic about it understands why it's it's not really a a top-tier sport in this, you know, North America. Um but it's also it means that for people who are, you know, willing to hustle and willing to sort of try something different, you know, MLS is a pretty accessible league. There's a lot of stories there. There's still a lot of stories that probably could be told that aren't being told um yet and uh You know, I had no problems, you know, uh, Toronto FC is probably one of the most media popular teams in, in, uh, uh in MLS. And even so it was, you know, I, I had a pretty good relationship with the, uh, the, you know, media people there. And, uh, and if they, you know, if, if you had a decent story to write or you needed media access, you know, you could, you could, um, they were pretty inviting. So, so it's a less stressful league to cover that way. Um, it's obviously in the players and the manager's best interest to sort of make themselves available to journalists who want to do a story. Um, I got pitched a sort of last minute story for the, New York Times a few years ago, just to, to sort of uncover, you know, Toronto had a grueling road schedule to start the year because, you know, because of winter conditions in Toronto and also because of, they were expanding the stadium. Um, so it was brutal that the team had to start, I think it was like nine or 10 games on the road. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I think I had like a week deadline on that story and I had immediate access to, you know, three or four of the top tier players on the team and I managed to spin out a good story for that. So I think for, you know, it's good and bad. It's it's bad obviously because it's hard to become a media star covering MLS here, but it's good in that um, the league is willing to to sort of let you cover what you want to cover.
0: What sort of extent do you think the media coverage... Of football, particularly MLS, actually affects the 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 broader population and even the wider, I guess, the wider fans around the world. Their perception of of the league. Do you think that MLS has been covered well? Or do you think it could have been done better? And, and whether or not that's held it back in any way?
1: It's a good question. I think I think people sort of, especially people who run leagues, have this idea that if the media coverage is done right, it'll be sort of a magic bullet and uh, you know help fill stadiums. And I think that's a bit that's a bit unrealistic. If it's done well in North America, I think there are people, certainly individuals who do it very well. I think MLS kind of has, you know, this is maybe not a big issue or it's not getting as much attention as it used to, but MLS used to have a big issue with the fact that a lot of the coverage is being done through the MLS website through essentially writers who are writing for the league, which is not always the most Uh, opportune or you know ethical arrangement necessarily but they're all good writers and they all had a fairly objective stance on on the teams but that's no that's not always ideal that the the league is covering itself but uh in terms of how it affects perceptions of the sport i think what matters is uh when respected mainstream sort of sports generalist sites covering MLS and uh, so I'm thinking things like you know the Ringer or Deadspin and FiveThirtyEight uh, I haven't seen much on some of those sites whenever Deadspin does cover MLS it tends to be really really highly critical so I think there's still a lot of perception that the league has to do to break through the fact that it's never going to be on par with the European leagues unfortunately
0: mm, and I think the Ringer itself is, is up in the air in terms of soccer at the moment anyway so I, I wonder whether or not that will have a, a long-term effect
1: yeah, I mean, the one area where there does seem to be really solid movement toward providing comprehensive coverage for MLS and, and soccer in general is, uh, is obviously The Athletic. So they've obviously had a huge push and they've hired a really, you know, a really good, solid group of, of writers. Um, I'm not a huge reader of The Athletic, um, but, uh, you know, and I so I don't really know to the extent they're really pushing the uh, sort of local MLS coverage because I know their model's really based on sort of um looking at sports from a regional perspective. So if you're a Montreal fan, you can go to a very Montreal centric version of the athletic and, and get your perspective on those teams. But I don't know, like I wouldn't even be able to tell you who athletics you know local beat writer for the you know the new york red bulls is for example or or or, you know lafc i just don't know so um so i think but i still think that's sort of an opportunity where the league can sort of gain a little bit legitimacy um you know especially as the athletic continues to grow
0: let's move on to talk about your own outlet you set up your own outlet tell us about the experience of of setting up that blog and what you learned from your time working at the cold face of the media as it were
1: well, I've done it a few times. <laughs> my first blog I started was uh, was uh, was a more splendid life, which is a, obviously a sort of truncated version of the E.B. Priestley quote, the famous quote about you know the Victorian quote about you know going through the turnstile and everything being happy. Um, that was sort of I think that sort of was uh, more in line with my my uh, rosy eyed you know ideals <laughs> for football at the time. That's probably changed a bit since then. <laughs> So but that was like a huge undertaking. And I had no idea how successful that would be. So I was kind of spoiled in a way because it was sort of the timing was really well for for a site like that to sort of, um, I mean, especially if you're, if you're really trying to work hard at it and publish regularly, that was a really, really good time to get noticed. Um, Now, obviously, it's a little more tricky. And after working at the score for three years, I I sort of developed sort of a niche writing about analytics stuff. Um, And I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about this in a second. But uh, I didn't want to stop doing it uh, after I left, um, but I also didn't necessarily want to have to rely on pitching freelance stories to write what I wanted to write about in that sphere. So I I started a, a front office dot report, and uh, not the most. You know, not the most breathtaking name in the world, but it didn't really matter. I already had an audience um, that I was sort of already writing for, and I just wanted a space where I could sort of continue writing in that vein. And that 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 site did quite well as well. Uh, again, it was really super niche, but um, you know, I would hear from people at you know the the sports analytics conference and elsewhere, people who are people fairly high up, not even just in soccer, but also in you know the NHL, who are reading that that site, um, which was, which was amazing to me because I I basically didn't, didn't do any advertising for it. Um, So I think there was an appetite for that kind of writing. And it's been unfortunately hard for me to I haven't refreshed the site in a while because I've been out of that game for a while and the job I do now is, is fairly intensive. So anytime I would write about analytics stuff it was a bit full on. Um, so it's been hard to keep up since then. But but that, you know, that was sort of a nice sign that there's an audience for that kind of writing. And then recently because you know, I need to have my toehold in some sort of football writing, I've been trying to maintain a regular Aston Villa newsletter. Uh, it's been a little I've been a little busy in November. We just had a great derby result, so I may I may decide to kick that can again but the point of that that thing was not to be regular it was just so that if i wanted to write about football uh, i'd have a space to do it so so yeah I, that's sort of that's always been the way i've operated i i you know i love working with editors and i love working with publications but there's a part of me that i just i i i just want to get something out as quickly as possible and obviously having control over your own site is the easiest and best way to do that
0: did you ever try and monetize these sites uh,
1: yeah i mean i'm i'm not the best I'm not the best business person for this. I, I sort of, you know, I I really had a dream to sort of figure out a way that that I could get, you know, the front, the, the analytics writing in particular, to get that to be sustainable. But, you know, it's hard. You know, I live in Toronto. Uh, Most of the stuff that's happening is overseas. Um, You know, I've I've done, I've done a lot of work with some very, very good companies um, in freelance. Um, And I, you know, I've been very lucky to work with, with people who are, you know, obviously on, on the inside of the club club side, but, You know, I I think it was just, I think it was too much of an ask. Uh, It's too much of a niche sort of subject. And, you know, uh, the people actually do the the decent analytics works are, work are underpaid so expecting to sort of eke out a stable living from from that side uh, was probably a little too difficult i mean i may try again just as a sort of side source of side income but but you know uh, i think i i never really managed to figure out the, the winning formula as it were
0: moving on from that i guess my question would be whether or not in your experience football media outlets are up to speed with the wider media industry obviously this podcast i try and speak to people within the industry all the time and I balance that off against spending time speaking to people within the media in general. And what I've found is is that people in the media in general have a much greater awareness of the sort of general trends and fashions within the industry than, than people working particularly in, in football media. But sports media in general, that might might also apply. Do you have any experience of that? Would you say that football media outlets are up to speed with the wider media industry?
1: Well, it's hard to say. I sort of sometimes get the impression that no one in media right now <laughs> has a solid on what they're doing. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I I'm a bit of a politics junkie, and it's interesting to see. You know, you know, read outlets like Vox and Axios and uh, and you know Politico, and and they each have a sort of a different editorial ethos in terms of what what works and what doesn't. And uh, you know, I think I don't think any one single group has a winning formula. I think. Um, you know, I think there's obviously major gaps in quality. I think some outlets have a really strong understanding of what readers, you know, will gravitate to and what doesn't work. Like, you know, I find the New Yorker sort of hit to miss ratio, you know, it's, it's pretty high compared to, you know, some, some other outlets. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I think the, the other problem I always had when I talk about this subject is, you know, my, my tastes are so subjective. Um, there's things that I just don't have any time for, uh, you know, like, sort of, typical game reporter or color sort of feature in the man on the ground story or they sort of you know try for a sort of novelistic flowery opening and it and it you know you'll get a few anecdotes from the locals and sometimes that can be a really interesting approach but i just find it so it's so cliche that i'm not drawn to it but i think you know there's clearly an audience for that kind of writing as well i think i think uh you know we're in a situation now where there's just it's it's not that any outlet is doing anything wrong especially in a football sphere it's just, there's just this wall of content uh and i think the fact that anytime you sort of uh have a huge surplus of uh you know quantity that uh, uh you know huge surplus of supply that the demand is going to lower and it just makes the 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 sort of um the financial model a little more difficult to, to, to sort of to sort of see. So it's really hard for me to sort of blanket condemn the entire football media industry for being behind the trend. When I think everyone's sort of trying to figure out what's you know what's sustainable um, in the next few years, and and honestly, none of the signs look good. But uh, but maybe the athletic is an area you know the sort of paid subscriber model where you know um, you know f- they can sort of learn some lessons. Uh, that unfortunately, that style of writing <laughs> is not always. The kind of writing I find the most attractive to read. But, but, uh, you know, like I said, that's my own subjective taste. And if they're finding that they have a huge, huge audience for that, then that might be the direction to go in.
0: Yeah. The athletic's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think they had so much money behind it, bankrolling the whole operation. And it's obviously worked out well. They've, they've picked up huge amounts of subscribers. But in terms of its innovation, as you mentioned, it's, it does feel very much like, just local media doing the same thing that local media has always done. So I wonder whether or not in the long run, people will be happy to continue paying their subscriber rates. But I guess the question that I always fall back on is this, this sort of idea, like what comes first? The, I don't want to say the chicken or the egg, but what comes first? The, me- the media or, or people's expectations of what the media should, should be like. And I think I'm not, into, I'm not entirely sure that, you know, if we, if we continue just saying, well, you know, this is what the media is going to be, whether or not the audience just sort of, is plastic and responds to that and whether or not there might be there might be ways by which we could maybe reverse that process and say here's a different way of doing the media what do you think of that i I don't know what your thoughts. sorry there's a lot of questions in there but (laughs) what do you think of the media's influence on what people's expectations of the media are
1: yeah i mean it's an interesting question i mean i sometimes think so the athletic model seems to me to be uh, twofold. So obviously there's, you know, they're a startup. So part of like their first sort of phase of any startup is sort of proving to investors that there's a s- stable audience. So I think, you know, one of the reasons they obviously are interested in hiring sort of old old guard sports writers is because they sort of have this existing network of followers um you know sometimes hundreds of thousands of followers and so obviously if those people are used to reading articles from you know a sort of mainstream uh columnist and they just are willing to pay a little bit of money a month to read the same articles on a different website than the newspaper then maybe that's a sustainable model in the in the short run and also maybe they really like me i always think that there's a niche of hardcore sports fan who is sort of a different ilk who will read the most technically dry gamers, they'll read every single feature, they'll dive in, you know, like, you know, I just think of whenever I'd see articles on sort of the minor hockey leagues in Canada. And, and, you know, the, the, just the fact, I always imagine, is there's even an audience for, for this stuff? But, you know, maybe there is. And maybe the, the future is just rather than having a, a wide general audience for these stories. Uh, you get a very, very, you know, a, a much smaller but um, hardcore niche group who are willing to pay prices to read, you know, as much as they possibly can on every single subject related to sport. That's a bit of a shame to me from a cultural perspective because, you know, I think there's still a lot of cool stories that would help draw uh, an audience who might not know much about football into the sport, but, you know, m- maybe... That's a sustainable model. I don't know. Um, but you're absolutely right. I think, I think people are afraid to experiment. And I think maybe they would say, well, we've tried experimenting in the past. We've tried pivoting to video. We've tried taking a different route to looking at sport. But, but I guess in terms of what I enjoy from my own, my own perspective, I, I you know, sites like Deadspin, you know, who sort of, you sort of, you know, stick their toe in the water. They'll, they'll just find something hilarious about, uh, you know, that happened in the NFL yesterday and you'll read that and, and that's fine. And then they'll do, you know, a thousand word feature on, on why, you know, an MLB player is, you know, is the worst player in the league or something. And it's, you know, it's, that's the sort of thing I'm drawn into. And I think they're really good at sort of building a sort of a general audience for people who are sort of half interested in sport, half interested in culture, half interested in politics, and, and sort of driving something there. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of variety. That's the always thing. Like, that 's always why I find it's difficult to condemn the media as a whole because you know I think that what the internet's done is it's splintered off you know it really is whatever kind of coverage you want for, for for the sport right now you can find it but it's I think it's that's part of the problem itself there's just so much of it
0: yeah and I think maybe the, the answer to why that might be the case is because of ad revenues and something that I always end up talking about at the end of the at the end at the end of the day to use a footballing cliche that all of these outlets are trying to make money and, and the majority of these models almost exclusively in, um, in most sports media is, is the ad revenue model. And the problem with that is you have to just try and get as much interest from as many people as possible, which I think means that you do end up going down that one size fits all media approach, which, like you said, is, is maybe going to be counteracted now by, by these more niche markets. So I think, I wonder whether or not, whether the sort of future of football media will hang on whether or not ad revenue continues to be problematic or whether or not a lot of these other sites find other ways of monetizing like you said you've already mentioned subscription models there's also i guess membership models as well and i, I guess various payment models which will which could change the way that the media looks like in the future i don't know if you've got any thoughts on that
1: well yeah i mean I just don't know that there's a secret code, uh, you know, I, I I don't know how sustainable the athletics model is going to be, honestly, in the long run, um, for various reasons, just, you know, pe- subscriber fatigue, uh, you know, I think people sort of realizing they maybe haven't read about a particular sport for a while and may just want to discontinue. But I also think it's, um, I think, again, this comes back to this problem of the wall of of Content, um, you know, if when I'm thinking about Villa and I just want to know the Villa score, I just Google Aston Villa and I'll just check whatever's under the Google news feed and I'll read it without, a, you know, without a single thought to who wrote it. I'm not looking out for quality in that case. I'm literally looking for raw news, but if there's a particular writer I want to read about something and I see that they've written something, I could go to them directly, but you know, neither approach lends itself well to a sustainable revenue model. Um, uh, maybe for that individual writer in certain cases, but, uh, but I just think, um, you know, I, I just don't, I, I think we're in a situation, I think back to the days of the paper, you know, I think I used to have a Globe and Mail subscription, which is a national paper here in Canada. And they had um, a guy who used to write regular columns for them, Stephen Brunt, and he was sort of a sports generalist, the kind of guy who would write for The Athletic now. And uh, but he was he, I mean, one of the few Canadian, Canadian columnists who could write, uh, both in, intelligently and knowledgeably about soccer and do it in a way that was, you know, attractive to a general audience and in those days it was enough, you know, you there might be an article on Manchester United's game on Saturday and it would be like the sort of AP standard you know, sort of gamer report and then Stephen Brent might write a feature on, you know, Chelsea and, and Roman Abramovich or something and, and that would be that and then you'd be done with the paper and you'd put it down and you wouldn't really think about football until you watched it again but the main thing was watching the sport, you know, the, this idea that we needed this 24 24- Seven ever-turning media machine to like digest every single last aspect of the game was sort of alien. Um, obviously, I don't think that's a bad thing because it allowed people like me and others to sort of gain a voice where we wouldn't have otherwise done so. But um, but at the same time, it's it's. You know, I remember this feeling of really strong feeling, especially towards the end of working at the score of just just content fatigue, you know, Um, that we were one voice of countless voices just sort of churning out the same same stuff. Um, And I think that was partly when I worked there, why it was so important for me to sort of try to find this niche because it was help stopping me from going crazy (laughs) writing the same article over and over again. And so, because no one was covering analytics at the time, I was like, well, this will at least allow me to like talk to people who nobody else is talking to and try to do something original. So I still think like there's, I think that's, like I, I'm not convinced that we've definitely like dug up every single interesting angle to the game that's left to d- dig up. Um, so that's an area I think we could do better at. But in general, um, you know, I, I just find I just don't know. Like if I was an average reader, I just uh, you know it's really hard to sort of figure figure out um, you know what's good, what's bad, and and it can be too much for me. It, it, for me, it is too much
0: no that was my experience as well working as a football editor for a, for a website in the last year the idea of content fatigue is a, is a real one yeah i wonder if we could move from there to then talking a little bit more about long form because i think i wrote a, i wrote a thread on twitter the other day just saying economically for me it's much more worth my while to write short form pieces uh, in terms of my per hour rate i mean there's the there is the problem that it's you would have to get a lot of short-form pieces in order to constitute anything like a salary. But it's become very much the case that it's not particularly uh, economically viable to write long-form stuff. And yet, I think the majority of people writing in the industry sort of see the long-form as the sort of holy grail of what it is that they they would want to be doing. You've written long-form stuff. You've written for The New Yorker. You've written for Pace magazine. You've written for The Atlantic. What are your experiences of long-form sports writing? And do you think that it's a dying art...
1: Well, I mean, even what I did, I like, I would say maybe it was like mid form, you know, like, like, you know, I sort of, I wasn't exactly writing, you know, the sort of gay to lease, you know, 1950s magazine feature style writing, which would be wonderful to do. Is it a dying art? I don't know. Do some people do it better than others? Absolutely. I think, I think for long form to work. And this is the issue, right? Like, is that publications either aren't willing or can't afford to pay, you know, writers what it would be worth their time to sort of make, uh, to put in the work to make a long form piece really good. And I think the problem is, you know, I don't, not to criticize anybody, uh, but uh, there's a lot of people who, are given long form assignments and they think that going to physically going to a place and seeing things watching a game and maybe seeing what's going on outside the stadium is alone enough to write a long form piece and maybe sometimes they can do that and it's beautiful and it's brilliant and the right things happen and it comes together. But I think for a long form to really work, you have to provide, you have to really have a real story there. Um, and you need a really, really discerning editor who's very, very sort of strong about, you know, working with them. And I think the problem sometimes with, especially, you know, now is that people want to long for a piece, but they want it written in a week, you know, and sometimes I think to do to, to the work that you need to do it, you need a lot more time than that. So I think access is a huge, you know, access and budget is, is a huge, um, huge factor in, in Getting decent long form pieces. Um, uh, I think, obviously, like the long form interviews, I think are amazing, and that's why one area. And I know a lot of people are critical, like, say, the Players' Tribune, but I think, like, and I'm not even, wouldn't even characterize some of that as long form, but but that kind of piece where you get a player speaking very candidly about an experience that's, like, newsworthy, where there's actually news that's coming out of the long form piece itself. I think, you know, everyone's going to want to read that. Um, I think there's even now that that sort of stuff tends to break through all the noise. So I think long form for the sake of long form I think people miscalculated a little bit not just in soccer but but everywhere they think they thought hey if we just got a, a really talented writers to just write you know um you know 5000 word features uh, on whatever they wanted to do and they maybe went to one or two locations or spoke to one or two people and there wasn't even really a story there and the editor may have gone over their piece once I think that doesn't work as well I think Um, I think unfortunately to make long form work, you really have to put in the investment in the writer, um, and the writer has to put an investment in their time. Um, and that's not always possible. So that's sort of my own two cents on that, um, in my own experience.
0: You mentioned Gay Talese's his famous piece was the Frank Sinatra has a cold piece. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, I mean, he he was given an assignment to speak to Sinatra. Sinatra wouldn't speak to Esquire magazine at that point. And so he spent three months, I think, just following him around, ended up running up thousands of dollars worth of costs and and, and Esquire magazine paid for that. And I just can't see that, that sort of thing happening uh, nowadays.
1: But that's exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, that's the whole thing. The the amount of sweat, you know, you think of a Seymour Hersh article for The New Yorker that, you know, back before he was sort of crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, when he was, you know, the the amount of work that went into that piece, the amount of legal oversight, the amount of editorial oversight, the the discussion, you know, that it's that work that sort of shines through in those pieces. Now, I'm not saying that football has to be the same way, necessarily. But I think I think if you expect a long form piece to really break through to a wide audience. It really needs some of that, you know, either like a really in-depth interview, exactly, you know, chasing around, I don't know what the, you know, equivalent of Sinatra would be in the football world. Maybe, maybe a long form interview where you get Ronaldo to speak candidly about, you know, the, the charges against him. Not that that would ever happen, but or, you know, even, even go, go to his agent, uh, you know, and, and sort of, or, or speak to, you know, Gia Karapshian or, or something. I don't know, just some high level piece like that. I think that would obviously have a massive audience, but again, it's, our our publications willing to put in the sweat, um, sweat to make that happen? I don't know. But I th- again, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people think, well, you know, all I have to do is, is go overseas, go to a game, see what's happening there, interview a few locals and leave. And that's a story. I, I think that's not, not quite good enough.
0: Yeah. I think also with the Gator Lee story it was was about the creativity he wasn't able to get access and so he was like well let's try and find anyone I can to to, to sort of corroborate what's going on and uh, I think that sort of there is obviously investigative stuff being done but you know like you said that sort of long form sweat to to get a story out of something where you're having to work all the time uh, in order to even get a story I think that the football is clearly open for that kind of approach now because it is so hard to get access, and that's precisely what it what it was in the first place. But let's move on. Let's talk about analytics because um, you you said you were, you moved into analytics because it sort of saved you from the from the drudge of the of content fatigue. In recent years, analytics writing has boomed somewhat. I, I've, I've written down stats bomb, the, the ringer until recently, who were fairly. Um, that way inclined and then 538 do various things here and there you were clearly ahead of the curve in, in moving into that sort of approach to football writing what are your views of the current population of analytics for lay audiences do you think that's something that's going to continue to be popular or do you think it, it, it itself might have some kind of latency
1: this is, yeah, this is a question I obviously, I have a lot of really strong opinions about um, that not everyone shares them, but, uh, but my own view is that so it's actually a good segue from the last question, because there's sort of two modes of writing about analytics. So the first is, you know, using analytics as a means to analyze the sport and writing about that in a public way. And I think that's really useful. And I think sort of Statsbomb does that really, really well. And I think they did it well because, you know, the the people writing for the site are really, really good analysts. Um, uh, and I think that was sort of the first wave of analytics writing. And I think that's very, very strong. What I, the, Where I think uh, we need more, what we need more of is um, the sort of Sean Engel style behind the scenes, sort of writing about analytics in the way that clubs are actually using them and writing about it in a way that's, you know, that's sort of, I don't want to say critically minded, but objective in the sense that you're not necessarily saying, you know, uh, analytics says teams should do this. But you're actually looking at, you know, an an experience of a team actually using this data. What works, what doesn't, what the experience is, you know. And you think of the usual suspects, obviously, like Michelin and and Brentford. um, But there's a few other smaller clubs that are using stuff that you know um, sort of similar similar methods that you don't you don't hear as much about and I think the sort of next step is to to get a sort of group of writers who are actually as opposed to like the sort of data journalism which you know is it's just sort of looking looking at analyzing football from a statistical lens and I think that's really important I think what would be much more interesting is to actually see, you know, the, the the sort of the victories and losses of teams that have actually tried to employ this approach, what, you know, and what their experience is and, and what some of the skepticism is and, and try to do so in a way that doesn't center the article around is analytics good or bad, but just tries to actually look at teams that are using it and, and see what's actually interesting, you know. So I think that hasn't been done yet you know we don't we haven't had our sort of michael lewis you know Moneyball book yet um that sort of looks at the way that data is used in in football in a way that's you know that's uh, that that makes it different from say baseball or or different from from you know any other sport where analytics is sort of in use and why it's different and, and what makes it interesting and i think there's a story there that can be told because you know one of the coolest you know one of the most attractive things i think for any analysts or at least Anyone interested in European football is the, is, the, is the promotion relegation system. And I think, to me at least, I've always been interested in the idea of, of a team trying to use data to to make leaps and bounds um, in terms of, you know, moving their way up, up the table. Um, and that's not something you see as much in North American sport. Um, and I think that's sort of, you know, a lot of smaller teams are looking into ways to sort of leverage data to sort of, you know, tr- try to sort of become a little more stable and move up the table. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of those stories that haven't been really told yet. And I know some of them anecdotally through writing for companies, uh, analytics companies, and I just, just in terms of who their client base is and I get to hear, you know, the cool stuff they're doing, but it would be cool if, you know, a few journalists sniffed around there and and told some of those stories because I think, I think, you know, to a neutral audience, that would be far more attractive than sort of reading about why, you know, Arsenal didn't take enough shots in in the box or whatever, you know.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And I I don't know whether or not you would agree with this assessment, but it seems to me that a lot of the statistics and analytics stuff obviously comes over from the US or at least uses the US um, sports approach to analytics as, as a sort of form um but in the uk for some reason in in football analytics there doesn't seem to be quite the same crossover between people who are maybe considered journalists or or i guess what we were talking what you were talking about in that first group category of people people who are simply writing about the statistics a lot of them are lay people a lot of the people who've done it on the side as as a sort of labor of love um there doesn't seem to be that much crossover between those and then the, the people who are working in clubs it does happen occasionally obviously uh, but I don't know if you follow baseball that closely, but I um I listen every week to F- Fangraphs audio, which is run by a guy called Carson Stuuli, who's the yeah, editor yeah. of Fangraphs. Yeah,
1: I was, I think I was on that show a few years ago. Oh, uh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. When I was at the score, he interviewed me. It was pretty fun. He's
0: a great guy. I personally think he's probably one of the funniest Americans to ever have lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But he's recently just taken a job with the Blue Jays as part of their analytics, analytics team. And you don't really hear of that sort of thing happening, whereas I've heard a few stories in, in baseball of that happening. And so I wonder whether or not you would agree with that characterization, whether or not, you know, that because there is that separation between the lay fans who have sort of ended up doing analytics work just out of interest versus this, the, this, this sort of more industrial approach that, that seems to happen in the US, whether or not you think that's a, a fair characterisation.
1: It might have been like a few years ago. I think it's changed. I think uh, you know, if you go to you know, like the sports, the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, um, you know, the quality uh, of work being done. You know, I think of people like Luke Bourne, who's um, you know lives in British Columbia. I know he's probably not even still there, but
0: um, he works in basketball, right?
1: Exactly. So he's, but he's also has a huge you know crossover interest in in, in soccer as well. So so he's been doing a lot of work there. Um, I think uh, I think for a number of reasons. I think people would probably be surprised if they knew the sort of caliber of of, uh, people that some clubs are working with. Um, Obviously not all of them. Uh, I think it's a lot more fun to talk about the boneheaded, you know, things that, that teams have done. <laughs> I think that's sort of changed. But I, you know, the funniest thing, you know, I remember talking with people like Blake, Blake uh, Wooster at 21st Club sometimes is you'd get these stories. Um, he would, you know, never name names, but just, you know, the things that, that he, he heard inside of clubs when he worked at Prozone was pretty funny. This was in the nineties when nobody probably knew any better, but, um, um, but, you know, now I think, you know, I'm not sure how many people knew, know about, you know the fact that Arsenal owns Stat DNA and the work that Stat DNA did, and and obviously when Henrik Almstadt was there, and and I think uh, you know I think it's obviously not in the best. You know the problem is anytime a club, especially like Bradford for example, they become the the, the certain numbers club. You know it's a bit of a target, right? Like um, it, it just becomes oh well, something if things go wrong, or you know they they don't finish where they're supposed to. It means the numbers aren't working, the system isn't working, the process is broken. Uh, I think, you know, Brentford have done, Brentford and Michelin have done really well enough that, that, that I think they can still sort of, um, you know, they can still embrace that, that, uh, you know, that, um, analytics, uh, sort of tag, but, uh, um, but I think for a lot of clubs, it's in their best interest to keep that work, uh, you know, to not, to, to ensure that work isn't very public. But I, I do know that they're, you know, the stuff that they do in European football, in some cases, in a lot of cases, is, is probably more sophisticated than you'd think. Um, I don't think it's as sophisticated in the same way that across the board that it is in, in Major League Baseball, but, um, and it's certainly not talked about the way that it is. Like, there aren't, there isn't the equivalent. I mean, Stats is great, but they're not doing, they don't quite do exactly what Fangrafts do, does. Um,
0: so, so yeah,
1: um, but I think it's just a matter of time. Maybe maybe those gaps will start to fill in, and people will start to talk about that side of the game a bit more.
0: No, I do find that the whole side of things really interesting. Like like you said, you know, there, a lot of it is is clouded under this sort of cloak of secrecy because you don't want any advantage to be given away to your opponents, obviously. But the the fact that you can you can end up doing it as a sort of labor of love, and then and then ending up working for, for a, a club somewhere, uh, I guess, is the dream. Eventually, it, it, I do find that kind of really fun.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, to a lot of these guys, I mean, uh, they they might not be they might not be bragging about it, but they're you know they're coming from areas where they could get fairly lucrative work. You know, in other like, I think some of them were environmental scientists. Some have had a lot of in, lot of experience setting lines in the betting industry, and obviously, they only hire people who will ensure they don't lose money. So that's pretty important. So I think uh, I think the talent. I mean, overall, I think soccer is a hobby for them. But I think, like in terms of data analysis and statistics, they're they're probably you know as good as as good as anyone you'd hire. So
0: I know a lot of them work in things like customer anal- analytics for various stores in the in, at least in the UK scene. There's a lot of guys who will work for John Lewis just analyzing everything that you could analyze about how you're going to market things how s- customers are using stores etc etc in terms of even in terms of movement around stores and stuff so it becomes very much like football so yeah fascinating stuff a bit creepy <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, it's terrifying <laughs> yeah maybe we could move a little bit more topical and talk about the the media involvement in the copa libertadores fiasco that we've just had obviously for those people who don't know who've been living under stones i guess the 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 copa libertadores final or the second leg of the final was due to happen this weekend and it didn't happen because of an attack that was made on the Boca Juniors bus and the game was pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and it eventually has been cancelled for the second time today or second time this weekend today lots of questions being asked about the tendency of the sports media to sort of fetishise sporting events in the UK at any rate the last couple of weeks have all been about how this is the game of all games this is the perfect Copa Libertadores final it's a derby match between Boca and River Plate I don't think it's ever happened before and it, it seemed as though that moved very quickly from being, Oh, look at these fans with such passion. Here's a, here's an open training session with 50,000 fans there to, Oh, actually, there's, this is, <laughs> this is not quite so savor as we maybe thought it was. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that then. This sort of tendency for the sports media to fetishize these events. Do you think there's the media have some sort of responsibility in, in portraying things in such a way that the that sort of offsets this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's hard. Uh, there's a lot of people I respect. Who cover South American football pretty closely, and I think the ones who are actually there. This stuff is not, you know, there's there's no romance, you know, like uh, thinking like Sam Kelly, or, and even people like who visit um, with a sense of admiration. Like I, I don't know if you know Danny Last's photography, and he, I think he would just had a visit of, of the like did a huge Argentine tour of all the local clubs, and you know, it's an amazing perspective. Um, and I would not characterize. You know, he's obviously his interest is these these pan, these fans and how how passionate they are at these I mean these local derbies and and um, and uh, you know there's never the sense that he's r- romanticizing anything, um, but it's a fine line, right? Because I think uh, there's that side of it, and then there's the sort of absent-minded. You know, this is this is what this this sport means to these people, and they'll show you know they'll show fans intimidating buses, um, and for others will be sort of flippant about it, and it's like oh this is no no better than what we used to do in the '80s or whatever, so. So I think it's a I think it's a fine line. I think um actually my my perspective on what happened in that game is is kind of it's a little sort of more frustrating in terms of what was going on with live coverage. Um, and I think you know the same things that make uh, live events outside of football annoying, especially on Twitter, were sort of echoing echoed in in the coverage of this game. For example, uh, you know there was all these tweets coming out um, about how Johnny Infantino, who is obviously not a likable character, but uh, you know, they basically were coming out and saying that he had, he had uh, said that Boca's had to play or else, uh, I can't remember what it was. Uh, there's some sort of threat, you know, if they don't sort of better play or else. Um, and then uh, people wondering, well, why is Johnny Infantino stepping in, in a, in a commendable issue? Um, and, uh, and then later it, Turning out, I think today, I think I think Rob Harris at AP was sort of saying, "Well, I don't think there was any substantiation of, of that of that story." And this is what I find really frustrating: is that you have a million journalists who are just showing up from outside. You know, and a lot of them aren't Spanish speaking, and they're there, and and it's just this utter confusion of what reports and what's going on. Um, and I think you know it's already a tense situation, and it's terrible, and no one likes it, and. Uh, and then on top of that, you're getting misinformation about FIFA and it just becomes this pylon. So, you know, I think that 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 was really frustrating. Um, but yeah, I think, um, um, you know, I think a lot of, I think that the thing that has to come out of this now will be, well, well let's look at, you know, everyone knows about Boca's River. It's like, a, it's the, one of the biggest derbies in, in South America, let alone the world. It, it's just a huge, huge, huge thing. Um, but, uh, is it all, like, just the way we frame these stories about the, the passion for this, you know, this sort of, this sort of like set bladder-esque, you know, the football family, you know, the, the game unites us all. We're all passionate for it. Well, actually, has a seething dark side even in these derbies that are supposed to be the sort of bucket list derbies that everyone has to attend. You know, um, so I think you know it would be nice to have like a sober minded look at, at the state of Argentine football, at the state of policing as well. There's a lot of lot of people uh, in Argentina I'm really critical about that, I'm willing to point blame. But you know, I think I think this is an area where it would be worth someone again taking the time and resources to go there and actually. To, to sort of look at this from all angles and all sides and give it, you know, uh, give it. But that's the, unfortunately, the nature of football. In a month, no one is going to care about the Libertadores final that never, you know, second leg that never took place, right? So, um, so I don't know. That's, uh, so those are my sort of two perspectives on that. You know?
0: Yeah, no, interesting. I th- I saw today that Tim Vickery tweeted saying obviously the one of the issues that people have with with not finishing off the Copa Libertadores is that there's no South American candidate in the Club World Cup in UAE or whatever godforsaken place that's taking place in. I think Tim Vickery, tongue in cheek, said, Why don't they hold the the other the second leg in the UAE before that competition is due to take place? And then it was ten minutes before ESPN were reporting that as truth that sort of <laughs> that sort of fits into your first point which was you know things become true simply by dint of the fact someone said it
1: well yeah um so i the, the example i'll have of that is a, a spanish journalist whom i won't name which, <laughs> was, was basically just tweeted without sort of giving any context to the report so i think if you're going to tweet that an official especially like the head of fifa is saying something extremely controversial about uh, a a football match that's already, you know, been surrounded by violence, that you owe it to your readership, regardless of the facts on Twitter, to know exactly the context of which you heard that remark. And if it was secondhand or if it was firsthand, where are you? What's the location? Um, just it, maybe like a, take a photograph, something to, to sort of give the, that quote a little more legitimacy. But what inevitably happened is he just tweets that remark. We have no context of, of where he heard it or, or where it's coming from. And I guess, you know, the, the mirror, I think ran a story based on that tweet alone saying this is fact. This happened, you know? So I think, I think that's the laziest form, unfortunately, of journalism is that, you know, uh, people will trust you know, they'll say, well, this is a, a verified journalist on Twitter. This source is, uh, you know, impunable, Like, the, this, we, we can print this. I think that's, and base an entire story around it. I think that's a, you know, that's just the laziest form of journalism.
0: I think my other frustration is the fact that there's been very, very little coverage given to the actual political situation in Argentina, which I think is is probably the context that you need in order to make sense of what's going on, regardless of, of what's going on in Argentine football as well. So I think there's a little bit of frustration, I think, for me in that, we are getting adept at at sort of sanitizing football and trying to keep politics out of that. I know that's obviously a huge topic of discussion in the US, um, but it seems to me palpably ridiculous to think that that the the current political climate in Argentina hasn't played any part in in what happened this weekend. And I read a lot of outlets um, just to see whether or not there were any mentions of this and there wasn't really any mention at all. Despite the fact that Carlos Tevez came out and said, this is, you know, this is a social problem it's a quote you could read it it's, it's on Twitter and a lot of these outlets are quoting Carlos Tevez but not this quote so I think maybe I get, I get a little bit of frustration there and I think you know when I when I talk about responsibility I think you know I, I guess I kind of feel as though the, the, you're almost opening yourself up for a a critique of saying, you know, it's almost like a colonialism that's happening. These reporters are flying 7,000 miles round trips for the weekend to go and write about this, about this culture that they, they aren't really that clued into. And, and it becomes problematic when there isn't given that sort of appreciation of the, the actual culture and the, and the, the government and, and whatever else is going on in that country. I don't know what your thoughts on that would be.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing, right? Like, I think if you're a journalist and you're credited and your job is to go watch a football match and write about what happens on the match, you know, and, and obviously they, they'll they know some of these players and um, they'll know maybe the context, the footballing context, but you're absolutely right. I mean, no one is going expecting a match to be called off for violence. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, you know, the idea, everyone's kind of screwed because, this game, you know, has a very small window where people are going to be actually interested in the coverage, which makes adding a, a sort of veneer of political context really difficult. And then on top of that, you know, uh, you know if the match is canceled. They're suddenly having being asked to write about, you know, social problems in a country they've maybe visited twice in the last, you know, five years or whatever. So, so I think, you know, I think just this is the problem there are definitely people who uh, it's in their best interest to separate, to pretend that football and politics don't mix. Um, but I think it's also the nature of, of sports coverage in general, that when these things happen, that expecting someone to pivot from a writer who sort of, you know, is willing to talk about formations and style of play and, and talk about in forward language about, you know, uh, an actual football match to, to ask them to sort of delve into, you know, complexities of a, of a political situation in a country where they don't even speak the language. Um, I think, you know, uh, it's difficult but what do we do about that i don't know i think again like it goes back to what i hope will happen is that someone will go back and say all right well there's a feature here like there's more than meets the eye in this story it's worth staying here and figuring out what's happening and and what is this reflective of a larger problem in argentina and how is it linked to politics and what's the situation with policing and and uncovering those layers a bit because Sure, it may not be the best investment for the fact that the the Copa Lib final is over, but but it will be an investment in the sense that Argentine football is going to be around. You know, we're going to come back to this. It's not like Boca Boca, you know, Boca River Plate is going to go away anytime soon. So you know, this is this is worth talking about. Um But anyway, we'll see if that happens.
0: Yeah, maybe one for delayed gratification. I don't know if you heard of that outlet, but, but yeah, 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 yeah. So some, something like that would be perfect, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Richard, I've taken so much of your time. uh, I could talk to you all evening, but we we (laughs) should bring it to an end. I end all of these interviews with a question about the future of the industry. So how do you see the future of the football media going and how do you see yourself fitting within that future?
1: Oh, man. Well, those are two two small questions. (laughs) Uh, Well, I sort of already touched on the future. I don't, you know, I sort of think of the shot at the end of Terminator 2 with the, you know, the highway. (laughs) No one knows what's happening. You know, and I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit like that, um, I think the hopeful thing is that uh we're not it's not like there's a shortage of writing about anything right now in the sport. I think we're all sort of spoiled for coverage. Is it all great no is is the stuff that gets read the most the best stuff? Probably not. uh if you dug hard and long enough, could you find a a writer who is you know writing about something that you were particularly interested in doing in an interesting way? Probably um Will anyone make money off of this in a sustainable way in the future? I kind of doubt it unfortunately. I don't know what that means. Um, I honestly don't. I don't think football rating is going to go away. Um, but I don't think there'll be some magical tipping point where we'll be like, oh no, it's, it's dying. You know, the the football, football media is over. Um, so, so I don't know. That's my sort of vague, non-committal answer, but uh, (laughs) I tend to err on the side of skepticism about, um, you know, how sustainable. It is for, for writers in particular, um, publishers, publishers, certainly, I don't think the, the future is good. What the future holds for me. Um, I'd love to keep writing about, I, I can't, you know, I, I sort of get overwhelmed by the sport. I get really cynical about it. I sort of switch it off for a few weeks and then, and then something happens where I just sucked right back in. Um, so I think, uh, I've always loved writing about it. Um, I've always love reading about it. Um, from the people that I really respect. So uh, I'd love to maybe get back into it someday. Um, but I think doing it full-time again is probably, probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but we'll
0: see. What's the best way for our audience to follow you on social media? Uh, I do
1: most of the soccer stuff on Twitter. So that's the best place to find me, at Uh I'm there
0: if you want to follow me. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed chatting.
1: Yeah, John, it was a pleasure talking with you. It was great.
0: Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at FootyMediaPod. You can tune in next week to hear Paul Hyland talk about literature's place in the media. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye.